Welcome to episode number 55 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. It's been about two months, and I can finally say it. We've got fights coming up this weekend, and I'm really, really excited about that. So first topic, obviously, is going to be just talking about UFC 249, uh, what card we have to work with right now, and making some predictions on those fights. Then I'll talk about the fights that are coming up sort of within the next week after that. So there's going to be two events. So there's going to be one on the 13th and then one on the 16th. So again, the 9th is going to be UFC 249. So I'll read through those cards. Um, there's a story that Bloody Elbow put out that was just really trying to make the idea of running an event right now look as bad as possible. So I'll talk about that and some of the responses they got from some professional fighters. Um, a lot of states have been extending their lockdowns and that's been causing a lot of problems for a lot of gym owners. Um, for the most part, I've heard mostly about jiu-jitsu gyms. I mean, obviously, there are a lot more jiu-jitsu gyms than MMA gyms. It's a lot more profitable for business, but it seems as though a lot of them are having trouble right now, so I'll talk about that whole situation and how they can go ahead and move forward. There was a weird little exchange between Curtis Blades and Pearl Gonzalez just regarding Curtis Blades, talking about how there are some female fighters out there who, just based off of their skills in the octagon, have no business in the UFC, but because they go around taking scantily clad pictures, they're still in there. Uh, so I'll just recap that Um the back and forth there and get my take on it. And then the last topic to talk about is going to be Cowboy Cerrone giving an interview to Brett Okamoto where he pretty much said that he just wasn't feeling himself. He w- he just wasn't there for the Connor fight. And in, in, in some ways was kind of agreeing with what Stephen A. Smith had said. Uh, we all remember Stephen A. Smith getting absolutely trashed for his take. And Stephen A. responded to a clip of that interview saying, I told you guys I was right. You guys were shitting on me f- for all this time and I was right and you guys were wrong. So I'll talk about that situation as well. So UFC 249. I've gone through the cards in past podcasts. I'll go through it again. Uh, just go really quickly, um, top to bottom. So Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje is the main event. Uh, Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz is the co-main event. We have Francis Ngannou versus Jarzino Rosenstroik. Jeremy Stevens, Calvin Cater. Greg Hardy, Jorgen DeCastro. Then on the prelims for the prelim main event, Donald Cerrone and Anthony Pettis. They have Alexia Lenick versus Fabrice Overdoom. Carlos Barza versus Michelle Waterson. Uriah Hall versus Jack Ray Souza. Vicente Luque versus Nico Price, Bryce Mitchell versus Charles Rosa, and Ryan Spann versus Sam Alvey. So that's your full card. I uh, didn't end up making the the breakdown that I was thinking about doing last week. Uh, I was a little busy this week, and I, I figured a lot of the points that were going to be in it I, I can kind of make in this podcast as well. But to, to be fair, I've kind of made the points already. I, I think it's just worth repeating one more time uh, with it being the week before the fight. But to me... The big thing that I've noticed, and I, I've spent a lot of time this week watching back some Justin Gaethje and some Tony Ferguson fights, just just to see if there's anything I can pick up there that I hadn't initially noticed. And one of the things that stands out really big, and even more so than I had previously noticed, is just how often Tony Ferguson puts himself in danger. Uh, but for him, he's, he really relies on his toughness, where if he does get clipped, he's able to take the shot, uh, recover, and just keep moving forward. And he knows that in the later rounds, especially in fights that are scheduled for five rounds, that he's going to wear out his opponents. Um, but the openings are definitely there, especially for right hands. Even in the Kevin Lee fight, Kevin Lee was finding big openings for that right hand. Um, Ke- Kevin Lee really did look good watching back that fight. I looked e- even better than I remembered. Um, not only in being able to find those openings for the overhand right, even though he-, he did drop Tony at one point, but it's not like he was ever close to finishing him. Um, but then once he got on the ground as well, he was doing a lot of damage there. Now, for this specific matchup, what we saw on the ground between Kevin Lee and Tony Ferguson, I, I don't know that that's going to be all that relevant in this Justin Gaethje match, but I don't see Gaethje trying to take Tony down. If he does, I don't know that I see him being super effective at it. One of the things that we hear about Justin Gaethje a lot is that he's a, a former D1 All-American, and that's that's something you earned. It's not something that's given to you, so having that status definitely means something. But with that being said, just so everyone's aware, what D1 All-American simply means is that 
you qualified for the Division One National Tournament, which had, I believe, when Justin was doing it, I think they had 32 spots. Um, I think there were maybe like 80, 90 D1 schools, somewhere in that range. Uh, so you definitely have to be on the top half to qualify. Uh, but then within that tournament, if you finish in the top eight, then you are an All-American. So it's not as though All-American is something where they look at the whole season. It's just... <clears throat> it, it, it's just a ranking thing. That probably sounds like I have coronavirus. That, it's just a ranking thing um, where if you finish in the top eight of your bracket, you are an All-American. So for Justin Gaethje, the year that he did All-American, I believe his record going into the tournament was like 29-15, and 15, uh, which again isn't a bad record, but it's not exactly like a dominant record where it looked as though he was one of the top guys in the nation. Now, with that being said, in the tournament, he did have some some big wins. Granted, they were, they were close matches, but he still won uh, against some guys who were higher ranked and did end up making it into the top eight and becoming an All-American that year. Uh, the year after that, he did not All-American. So it, it sort of feels like with Justin Gaethje, in some ways there's similarities to Cejudo, where Cejudo was never like the top-ranked guy in the world, but then he had a fantastic tournament in the Olympics, won gold. Um, I, I, I guess that's not super relevant because it's not like I'm going to be ripping out Cejudo and his wrestling. Cejudo's fantastic wrestling, obviously, to, to make the U.S. team is is fantastic. And to be at a level where you can compete with the top guys a little and beat them is is pretty good as well. Uh, but for Justin Gaethje, the point that I'm trying to make is that, yes, he is a D1 All-American, and his wrestling is definitely something to be respected, but it's not as though this is a guy who was constantly in, at the top of his weight class all four years. Uh, it, it's a guy who really wasn't top eight at his weight class at any point throughout the four years, except for that one tournament that he had his junior year. Um, so is he a good wrestler? Absolutely, he's a very good wrestler. Tony Ferguson is an excellent wrestler as well. I believe he's a two, uh, two-time D2 uh, national champion. So even if Gaethje decides he does want to wrestle with Ferguson, it's not as though he, I, I can see him just blowing right through him. And again, Gaethje's a guy who hasn't done a ton of wrestling in an MMA context, and wrestling in an MMA context is very important if you're going to want to be successful in wrestling. It's it's good to be able to mix your punches and your takedowns together. Uh, it's good to be able to have setups. It's good to know what sort of takedowns are going to work really well in MMA versus what takedowns are going to get you stuck in bad positions. And maybe Gaethje works a lot on that in training, but... As far as in, in fights, and in big fights no less, it's not something that we've seen a whole lot of. So it's not that I really see there being a, a high likelihood that Gagey's going to take Ferguson down and do a lot of damage there. Uh, but the, the big thing, and like I've mentioned before, is that Ferguson keeps his hands down a lot. He moves forward a lot. He likes to pressure guys. Um, but a lot of guys have been finding openings for right hands uh, with Ferguson keeping his um, left hand down. Gagey, in his recent fights, uh, if you look at the knockouts that he's had, oftentimes it's throwing one or two punches to, to finish a guy. Uh, if he has to throw a few more to to put him away after he lands the the fight altering strike, then that happens. But for the most part, he's he's trying to either just throw the right hand or he's trying to use the left hand to lure someone into the right hand. And with Ferguson being a guy who's susceptible to being hit with the right hand because he keeps his hands down, it seems fairly likely that Gaethje's going to be able to land a big right hand on him. Uh, the question is going to be how many of them is he going to land before Ferguson's able to take over? Uh, if he does land a big one, is Ferguson going to get dropped? How's Ferguson going to be able to recover from there? Uh, so there's a lot to be interested by with that, but with the odds being sort of slanted towards Ferguson, granted it's still, Ferguson's not even like a two to one favorite. He's less than that. Um, but with it being where it is, if you haven't bet on fights in a long time, I'm not saying that I think Justin Gaethje is going to knock out Tony Ferguson, but I think he's going to have him in trouble at one point or another early on in this fight. And given the price that you can probably get on, on a Gaethje knockout, might be worth throwing a little bit of money there. Uh, some people talk in terms of units. I wouldn't throw like 10 units on it, maybe like a few units, but it, it's definitely something worth noticing. And it, this is definitely a fight that I want to see. I'm really interested to see how it goes. I'm interested to see if Tony Ferguson is actually going to make some adjustments and actually keep his left hand up here to to protect against Gaethje's overhand right. Because you have to know that that's what Gaethje's looking for 
Ferguson's not a dummy. Ferguson, Ferguson's coaches aren't dummies. Like, the, that has to be on his mind. Does he make that adjustment to his game where he starts keeping his hands up? Uh, does he fight the way that he usually fights and just rely on his chin to be able to take any big shots that he takes and then just try to wear down on guys? These are questions that we're not really going to know the answer to until this fight starts, and I think that's one of the many reasons why to watch this fight. Now, granted, with there not being any fights in about two months, you, you could pretty much put anyone together and I'd watch it, but when you have a fight like this and you're trying to look at things just beyond, oh, this is going to be exciting, two guys who like to who like to go at it, um, two guys who are known as more the two of the most violent guys in the lightweight division. Um, from a technical standpoint, there's definitely interesting stuff to watch here, and watching Tony Ferguson's defense to that right hand versus Justin Gaethje setting it up, um, whether he's just trying to throw it one shot at a time, sort of like what Kevin Lee did where he's just swinging the overhand right, um, or whether he tries to lure him with the left to sort of get him to circle into it. Either way, it's going to be interesting to see what Justin Gaethje tries to do to set up that right hand, how Tony Ferguson's able to avoid it. Uh, if he's not able to avoid it, then obviously how is he able to recover after he takes him. Uh, and then also interesting to see how Tony Ferguson's offense is going to work. Tony Ferguson does work the body a lot. The guys who give him Gaethje a lot of trouble are guys who work the body pretty well. Gaethje likes to march forward, keep his hands up really high, and cover the head, but it does leave openings for the body. Sometimes it also leaves openings for hooks. Uh, and Ferguson's definitely a guy who will throw to the body. He'll throw... He'll mix up his strikes, not just where he's throwing it, but then also the types of strikes he's throwing, whether it's elbows, hooks, straight punches, um, sort of mixes it all up pretty well. So really interesting to fight fight to see in that way. And obviously can't wait to can't wait to watch it. We've got less than six days now at this point. And I'm just dying to see it at this point. Um, coming event, Dominic Cruz versus Henry Cejudo. It's tough with Cruz because he hasn't fought in four years, and he's a guy who I know has been training during that time. I know he's obviously kept his mind active as an analyst, uh, watching other fighters and making adaptations into his game. We remember with that fight against Cody Garbrandt, I, I think one of the things that people seem to be getting mistaken is that they think that Cody Garbrandt beat Dominic Cruz at his own game. That was a thing that I was seeing online where, with there being such a long time off, people were just trying to find topics to talk about in MMA, and one of the topics was examples of fighters who were beaten at their own game and one of the big ones that people were talking about was Cruz versus Garbrandt to me that really wasn't the case um, Cruz versus Dillashaw was two guys playing a fairly similar game where I guess by the scorecards Cruz beat Dillashaw at his own game now granted Dillashaw throws a lot more kicks and there are a lot of other differences in their game than that um, but what Garbrandt did to Cruz it wasn't playing Cruz's game Cruz's game is largely based on using footwork to get in and out uh, coming in at different angles uh, a lot of head movement um, mixing and takedowns Whereas Garbrandt's game was more just based on just solid boxing fundamentals and having really fast hands and just timing Cruz as he came in. So Garbrandt did a fantastic job of timing Cruz as he came in. He had, he had him scouted out really well. Uh, every time Cruz was coming in, uh, he seemed to really know where Cruz's head would be. Oftentimes Cruz throws his head off the center line and throws it off on different weird angles. So if you don't know where it's going to be and you're just trying to punch at the center line, you're oftentimes going to miss. Uh, whereas Garbrandt had him scouted out new based on the different footwork that Cruz was using where he was going to be once he got into the pocket and was able to counter him off of that. And I mean, Garbrandt has a lot of power in his hands. He has very fast hands, much faster than most other guys in the division. I would say faster than Henry Cejudo. Uh, so between scouting him out and also having really quick hands, he was able to catch Cruz multiple times, had the wrestling to keep Cruz off of him, and that was enough for him to get the win there. As far as Henry Cejudo goes, is it possible that Cejudo watched that fight closely and was able to make some of the same adjustments or at least make similar similar reads to what Cody Garbrandt had, that's definitely possible. But with it being four years ago, the question's going to be, is the dominant Cruz that we're going to get going to be the same Cruz that fought Garbrandt? Or is Cruz going to have a lot of new wrinkles into his game, uh, specifically into his striking, that's going to change things up? And even if Cejudo scouted him well, he just wouldn't have a, would not have had a chance to see um, what Cruz was able to add. I think that's going to be a really fascinating part about this fight. 
I think early on, I would imagine that they're both going to kind of feel each other out. I think Cruz is going to come out the way he usually does, uh, coming at different angles, trying to land some punches here and there. But I think Cejudo is going to take some time uh, really to try to get a read on Cruz and try to figure out if a lot of stuff he's doing is the stuff that he had scouted out for him or if he's doing some new stuff. And if he's doing some new stuff, trying to make reads on that so he can adjust to it later on in the fight. As far as how the wrestling is going to work in this, is it possible that Cruz could take Cejudo down? I would definitely say so. If it's just a straight wrestling match, would I ever pick Cruz to get it, land a takedown to Cejudo? No. Um, but I was just talking about how with Justin Gaethje, takedowns in MMA are a lot different than takedowns in wrestling. You have to be very good at the setups. Dominic Cruz is fantastic at setting up takedowns, especially with a lot of his... Um, a lot of the footwork that he uses to get into the pocket. A lot of times you don't know if he's punching, you don't know if he's shooting underneath. Uh, he has very quick finishes as well when he does shoot for his takedowns. So if he's able to get Henry Cejudo ready to block a punch or ready to to try to counter a punch and then he slides right underneath and has a chance to finish with as quick as a fin- with as quick as Dominic Cruz finishes his takedowns is it possible he could do so on Henry Cejudo yeah I mean Henry Cejudo is a human he's going to keep Cejudo down um, that's tougher to say in the um, Dillashaw fight when he took Dillashaw down Dillashaw would just kind of treat it like a folk style wrestling match um, and then just kind of work back onto all fours and then stand back up and that was successful for him Cejudo didn't do a ton of folk style wrestling, but I'd imagine, even though he didn't wrestle in college and work folk style then, I'd imagine he'd probably take a similar approach. And is it possible that over the last four years, Cruz has spent a lot of time working on his jiu-jitsu and on his back takes when people do that? Sure it is. Maybe that could be an interesting wrinkle if Cruz is able to get a flash takedown on Cejudo. Cejudo tries to get back up, and then Cruz um, clings onto his back and then uh, surprises him from there. But to me, it's definitely possible that Cruz is going to add some wrinkles here that Cejudo is not ready for. Uh, I, I could definitely see him taking some rounds. If he's able to take two, three rounds, then obviously it's going to put Cejudo in a really tough spot where he's going to have to really go out, go all out, and either try to finish him or try to dominate around so much that he at least gets a ten-eight and keeps Cruz from getting ahead on the scorecards. But even though Cruz hasn't fought in four years, and even though his last fight was not the most impressive-looking fight, I definitely see him having a real shot at this. And the fact that he's not—I think he's like a two-to-one underdog, which I mean, obviously he's a clear underdog, but we've seen much bigger underdogs, and I think. The way a lot of fans are talking about this, uh, you would think he's a bigger underdog than what the vet, what the uh, odds makers have, and I think the odds makers are are, are pretty accurate on that. Um, but to me, Cruz is just one of those guys where because it's been so long, you, you really don't know what to expect. And that's one of the things I talk about in terms of sports betting in general, especially with MMA, is that it's so difficult to bet on because a lot of these guys, even if you have an active fighter, you might get 15 minutes out of them three times a year, but the positions. <clears throat> But the positions you see there might not really be indicative of what they're going to have to do in the next fight. Uh, and, and also, if I saw a fight that was like two fights ago, that was like eight months ago, nine months ago, there's a chance, depending on how they handle their training, whether they just do camps to try to sharpen what they already have or whether they train full-time and try to keep adding on new ta- new things, um, there's a chance that the way they handled a position eight months ago is going to be a lot different than how they handle it now. And the way they handle it now is going to be a lot, a lot better for them and lead to a much better result. So with Cruz having all this time off, it's really hard to tell what we're going to get from him. Um, but the version that we had from him in the past, I think, would be a difficult fight for Cejudo. And if he was making a lot of improvements over this time, um, b- between the improvements that he makes and also Cejudo just not being able to fully scout him out because he doesn't really know what those improvements are going to be, it-, it-, it can definitely make this fight interesting. So I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. I'm not going to go too deep in depth on the rest of the card in terms of Ngannou, Rosenstreich, uh, Stevens Qatar, or uh, Hardy De Castro. But I-, I think it's pretty safe to say cannot wait for this card. Have I've been waiting a long time for it. wish we had gotten it back on April 18th. Unfortunately, Gavin Newsom had to protect a county with eight cases and zero deaths of COVID at that point um, from all the death that would not have happened 
with the UFC having a bunch of guys, or not even a bunch, but having like a handful of guys come in for an event that would be closely tested and monitored. But at least Florida decided to finally open things back up. Uh, they've been allowing the WWE to do their thing. They allowed the UFC to do the thing, and as a result, they got three UFC events um, within the course of a couple of weeks. This is going to be the first one. we got a couple more, and those couple more are going to be starting on on the, um, on the May 13th. So the May 13th fight card, the main event will be Anthony Smith versus Glover Teixeira. We're going to get a co-main event, which is going to be an interesting one, between Ben Rothwell and Ovin St. Prue moving up from light heavyweight to fight at heavyweight. We have Alexander Hernandez versus Drew, Do- Drew Dober, uh, which I don't see being a, a fight that goes the distance. Uh, Hernandez will probably try to wrestle with Dober, but Dober's a difficult guy to take down and very explosive striker, giant guy for the weight class too. I'm going to be interested to see how he's able to make weight. Um, not sure what his training situation is like right now. So for him, it's it's tough under normal conditions for him to make 155. I, I'd wonder if he's going to be able to make 155 under these conditions. Uh, we've also got Rayborg versus Ricky Simone. Uh, really interesting matchup at Bantamweight. Uh, both guys are pretty good wrestlers, really good scramblers on the ground, um, sort of wild on the feet. I, I think Simone should probably have the edge on the feet if it goes to the ground. It, it just kind of depends on what positions they get into, but I would imagine that Ricky Simone should have the edge here. Uh, then we have Carl Roberson versus Marvin Vittori. On the prelims, they have Felipe Linz versus Andre Arlovsky, Michael Johnson versus Tiago Moises, Sajara Eubanks versus Sarah Morris, and then Hunter Azur versus Brian Keller. And then on the May 16th card, we're going to have Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris, who was supposed to fight against Overeem a while back before his daughter had, or his stepdaughter had been kidnapped and ultimately found dead. Um, so for Harris, it's good to see him finally get back. I know a lot of people were supporting him throughout the entire process, and a lot of people are going to be supportive of him now. Uh, we have Claudia Gadelia versus Angela Hill. Dan Ige versus Edson Barbosa, which is a very interesting fight, uh, especially for Ige. It's a really big opportunity for him. Uh, Eric Anders versus Christoph Joko. Song Yudong versus Marlon Vera. And then on the prelims, Anthony Hernandez versus Kevin Holland, Mike Davis versus Giga Chikadze, Courtney Casey versus Mar Romero Varela, Darren Elkins versus Nate Landwehr, and Rodrigo Nascimento versus Dante Almeys. Um, Song Yudong versus Marlon Vera is a really underrated fight on that card. That's one I'm really excited to see. It's going to be the first one on the main card. Uh, Vera was supposed to fight against Eddie Wineland. That fight fell through, obviously, with COVID. Eddie, Eddie works as a um, fireman, so for him, I'd imagine it's a pretty similar situation to what Stephen Miocic is dealing with right now, where he's really not all that available until things start to clear up. Not that Indiana has been hit terribly hard, but if you are a first responder, you kind of have to prioritize that right now. Uh, so he wasn't available to, to take a fight with Vera on a, on, on a rescheduled date. So Song Yudong is going to take that fight. Uh, Yudong is going to want to keep this fight on the feet. Vera is going to be dangerous on the feet, but Vera would like to take this fight to the ground, and I'd imagine if he's able to get it there, he should be able to get a finish. Uh, so both cards are going to be really good. It's been a long time since we've had MMA. It's going to be really nice to, to get a bunch of it really quickly. Can't wait till next Saturday when we get UFC 249, but these cards are going to be really strong as well, and look forward to watching them both live. Next topic to talk about is an article that was put up by Bloody Elbow where effectively the spirit of it was that they found un, un as in one, A-N, one epidemiologist who didn't like the idea of supporting events returning, specifically with the UFC returning, so they decided to put up this article like, this epidemiologist or this expert thinks it's a terrible idea for the UFC to come back right now and that things aren't going to be ready for a long time. And just the tone of the article and the tone of the headline was just sort of trying to create the storyline of, oh, experts think it's a bad idea for the UFC to move forward, so what the UFC is doing right now, just, it, it, it's a really bad idea and they should maybe rethink it and maybe even decide to pull up and, and not do their events. Uh, a handful of fighters just ripped them for it. Marvin Vittori was among them. Um, Damian Brown, a few others as well. And th- this sort of thing just kind of 
what's really annoying is that there are a lot of people who you could consider experts in different areas of this. Um, the coronavirus is a lot of different aspects to it. So there's the biological aspect of just understanding the virus. Um, there's the aspect of modeling and statistics to figure out what kind of damage it's going to do, what sort of needs you're going to have in terms of hospital beds and other resources. Uh, you have constitutional law in terms of what sort of laws can states and federal governments put in place to, to lock people down. Uh, that's an aspect of it. So there are a lot of different people who could be considered experts on how this thing needs to be handled and how people need to move forward. On top of that, among those people who are considered experts, even within just doctors, even within just epidemiologists, you're going to have differing opinions. So for them to cherry pick one opinion that goes in line with what they said when you obviously are not seeing them cherry pick other opinions, it's not as though they're putting up one article where this epi epidemiologist thinks the UFC will be fine as long as they take reasonable measures. And then they have another one where it's like, this epidemiologist thinks it's a bad idea. They're just picking the one where it's the guy who thinks it's a bad idea. And for them to get all the crap that they got, it was completely well-deserved. They, they should be getting a lot of crap for it. It's obvious what they're doing. They're not trying to create a balanced story here. They're not trying to get to the bottom of what are the pros and what are the cons. They're finding someone who has the cons. They're finding someone who has an opinion similar to them. They, they want to shit on the UFC. They found a guy who's going to help them shit on the UFC that has a, a good enough background in their opinion uh, to do so. And they're trying to use that to sort of as a stick to beat the UFC with. So I'm glad a lot of people were upset with them. I'm glad a lot of people um, gave them shit for that. And they were definitely right to do so. Next topic to talk about is going to be BJJ gyms and how they are struggling with the lockdowns right now. So with the first month, or with the starting off in the middle of March, a lot of gyms had closed. And for a lot of cases, students were probably already built. So they're like, yeah, whatever. Like, we understand. Uh, then April moved forward. A lot of people were losing their jobs. Obviously, we're at a point now in the U.S. where over 30 million people are collecting unemployment benefits. So at that point, a lot of students ended up having to stop paying. Um, but for a lot of these gyms, they need they need to at least be allowed to open so they can at least continue to charge full price to the people who are willing to come and willing to pay full price. And because a lot of these lockdowns are being extended, uh, where I'm at right now in Illinois, it got extended another month into the end, or until the end of May. Uh, Washington State, I believe, or I think it was Oregon that got pushed all the way down, or all the way back to like July 6th. Uh, so for a lot of these places where they're not allowed to stay open, th there's just multiple months where they're not bringing in income. And when you think about it, and this is a general thing just in terms of small business as a whole, it's not just a jujitsu thing, um, but you have businesses where they're doing fantastic, they're making a ton of profit, and when something like this happens where they just can't collect revenue or collect a very small percentage of revenue for a couple months, they have enough money saved up where they'll be able to handle it. Um, but if you look at a new business, oftentimes for new businesses, new businesses are going to operate in the red for the first couple of years until they start to break even, and at that point, then they start making profits. Say for a business that's already in the red, that's trying to work its way into the black, uh, and then something like this happens, it's going to hurt them really badly. If you have a business where they're sort of at a point where they're sort of struggling to get by, they're, like they're profitable, they're doing enough to, to operate, but any kind of hit like this is going to put them in the red. Then the longer this goes, the worse it's going to be for them, the more they have to decide whether or not they want to continue on. Um, I, I definitely know some gyms that had to close down because of this. Um, some announcements have been made, some have not been officially made yet. And it seems like moving forward, even when this does continue, they're not going to have the same amount of people training as they had before. Uh, some people are just going to be too concerned to train, whether it's because of the headlines they've read or whether it's because they're they're being reasonable and they're saying, look, this is dangerous to, to older people or to people with immunodeficiencies. Maybe the person themselves has it. Maybe someone in their family has it. Uh, and by it, I mean has, a, has an immunodeficiency or maybe they live with their parents and their parents are older. So for some people, it just isn't the most responsible thing to get back to training. For a lot of people, um, I, I would say myself included, it, it would be fine to get back to training. Um, but gyms, they're going to have to deal with people who 
who are able to pay but aren't in the best position to get back to training, they're not going to pay because of that. Uh, they're going to have people who would like to pay but don't have the money because their their job was eliminated because the government just made it illegal for the company they work for to operate, and so the company couldn't bring in any more money. And since they couldn't bring in any revenue, uh, they couldn't pay anyone. So it, it's, it's definitely going to hurt for, for a lot of these smaller gyms. I, I think we're going to see a lot of them go out of business in the meantime. Uh, as far as how they handle that, I guess it depends on how bad the losses are. Uh, sort of also depends on what they're able to keep from the gym. So if they do go out of business, are they going to have to like sell off their mats, sell off all their assets to sort of pay back loans or at least try not to go completely bankrupt? Or are they going to be able to at least like keep the mats and keep all that stuff in place and at least keep it in storage where maybe your gym closes for now, but after a year or two when things start to get better and once people start to get back to work, uh, maybe you decide, okay, look, we're going to go back at it again. I've already got the mats. I've already got a lot of the equipment. Uh, make sure it's clean, hopefully. You don't want to just like all sweaty and rotten just sitting in storage for a couple of years, but hopefully at least have that out of the way where at that point it just becomes a question of rent and then renovation. Uh, so maybe some some gym owners are willing to go back at it at that point, but it, it's pretty clear at this point that the jujitsu economy is going to be hurting, that the, the gyms are going to be hurting. Just the longer this goes, the worse it's going to be for the gyms that are still operating, how they are trying to handle this. I, I think the best way that they can handle it is if you are still charging your students, uh, just really go out of your way to offer them as much value as you possibly can right now without them being able to train. Uh, a lot of places right now are doing online classes. I, I think to an extent that's that, that's decent. I think for most people, um, sitting in front of your laptop and doing some solo drills really just doesn't cut it for you. Uh, so maybe if some gym owners want to offer like free private lessons, or I, I guess I shouldn't say free, but let's just say that a private lesson with your instructor maybe would cost like 75 bucks an hour and you pay 150 bucks a month. Uh, maybe to say like for every month that this goes on, we'll give you... Um, as many private lessons as what you paid for. So if you're paying 150, then you get two private lessons that you can redeem at some point later on per month. Uh, so that could be another option. But it, it's really forcing the gyms that can stay open to to be creative in terms of how they're trying to generate revenue and how they're trying to keep people engaged and keep them ready to come back. Uh, I'm also hearing that when these gyms do come back, that they're trying to figure out different ways to go about uh, handling this social distancing thing. Uh, the gym I'm at right now, and they haven't made anything official yet, but I'm sort of annoyed with what they did say. They were saying that there's a good chance that once things do get back in place, they're going to have temperature checks. And they're going to have limits in terms of how many people are allowed to train on the mat at the same time. Here's the thing. like, First off, this is a virus. So what does that mean if it's a virus? What that means is that if one person has it, um, whether they have it in their system, whether they have it like, maybe for whatever reason their clothes is Maybe someone with coronavirus spat on their clothes and they're wearing the same clothes and they're training. For whatever reason, if the virus is there and it's present, one person has it, another person doesn't, it can spread. If you have a room full of people but nobody have the virus, the virus isn't going to spread. It doesn't just get spawned out of nowhere. So if you have like a giant rave uh, with 2,000 people packed into a small area and they're all like dancing up each other, rubbing up against each other, but none of them, zero of them have the virus and the virus is nowhere to be found, no one's getting the coronavirus. Meanwhile, if you have like a house... Um, and you have two people in that house and one of them has the virus and the other one doesn't. And the one who does is maybe like spitting when they're in the shower, they're maybe like kissing their significant other or something like that. Even though there's a lot more space there and a lot fewer people, it's gonna spread. So with that being said, if you are running a gym and you're trying not to get a virus to spread, you have to, like if that's your main concern, you're just like, no matter what, this virus cannot come in here and this virus cannot spread, then you have to have actual tests that are coronavirus specific. So temperature checks, 
honestly, it, it's pretty clear that temperature checks on their own. They're, a temperature check is not a coronavirus test, obviously. So just having that and sort of like using it as a proxy for a coronavirus test, like if your goal is to make sure that nobody at all gets into your gym with coronavirus, that's not going to do it. Like it's just not going to be enough. Like if that's your concern that someone could possibly have the coronavirus and come into your gym, you, you kind of have to stay closed. With that being said, if you're going to also have it where a limited number of people on mats can be there, be there again, that kind of goes back to the first point I had where it's like if no one who gets into the gym has coronavirus, it shouldn't matter if the gym's completely packed if you feel as though the testing that you have in place, AKA the temperature checks, isn't gonna do a good enough job, then why are you doing the temperature check in the first place? Like it almost seems as though that, that's something that you would do to like to appease your local government in case you think they're gonna come in and like try to fine you. Um, or if you're trying to like appeal to maybe your less educated students who are too scared to come back unless they see like something's done in place. But honestly, if you're not willing to train unless you feel as though your, your school is keeping everyone out and perfectly testing everyone, I hate to tell you, but if your school is doing temperature checks, they're not doing enough. Like if, if that's your fear and you're not going to come back until the coronavirus is eradicated from the earth or until you know for a fact that no one in the gym has it, you, you just can't come back yet. Like there's no point to it. Um, so I think that's something that needs to be considered. To me, if you're going to tell you, talk to your students about this, you kind of have to say, hey, look, Whenever there's been a really bad flu season, we've continued on. It's important that you're aware of it and you understand that there's a there's a risk there. Um, if, if you're looking at pink eye, sort of like what happened with ADCC, where there was a really bad case of pink eye that was screwing up some people's visions for months at a time, um, you have to say, look, that's a possibility out there. Just understand the risks, and if you feel comfortable, uh, go ahead and move forward. If you don't, then that's fine. We understand. Uh, same thing kind of has to be the case with the coronavirus, where it's like, look, you have to understand there there is a risk here. Um, if you're comfortable with it, then that's okay. We're, we'll offer you a place to train. If you're not comfortable with it, that's perfectly fine. We understand that. And you, you don't have to pay if you don't want to. Obviously, if you're not training, we're not going to make you pay. If you do want to continue paying, then we'll we'll find a way to offer you some value for the money that you're giving me, uh, whether that's offering something when you're willing to come back, uh, whether that's offering something in the meantime right now, uh, whether it's more online stuff, whether it's like one-on-one sessions where we're just like doing online privates. Uh, maybe like if you have like some competition footage, then we can go over that and talk about that. But I think to me, that's the way that it really needs to be right now. Like you have to be honest with your students. You have to say, hey, look, we can't 100% keep the coronavirus out of here. Uh, no one really is gonna be able to do that. If you look at the cost of these tests, a lot of these tests are over 100 bucks a person. Um, if you're doing it properly, you probably have to have a new test every day. Cause even if I tested negative yesterday, um, maybe, within the next last, maybe within the next 24 hours I caught it. So you'd wanna be able to catch that again. So it's just not reasonable to constantly test people every day, every time they come in for a different class. Uh, and again, those tests aren't 100% correct all the time anyway. So to me, we're, we're kind of at a point where, as it's always been with jujitsu and any other close contact sport, th there's going to be a risk of, of catching infectious diseases and of, of catching viruses. Um, and so you kind of have to be honest and say, look, here's, here's everything we know. Here's all the information that I have on the topic. I'm going to allow you as an adult to make a, an educated decision on this. If you're comfortable, we got a place for you to train. If you're not comfortable, I'm not going to put any kind of pressure on you financially um, or socially to, to get you back. We're, we're going to make sure you don't come back until you're comfortable, and that's okay with me. So to me, that's the way that gyms have to move forward. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of them do take that approach or versus how many um, try to sort of take, take like these half-hearted approaches where it makes it where they think that they're like showing that they're testing people, like, oh, we're doing these temperature checks, so we're limiting the number of people that get in this gym. Look, look at how much we care. When in reality, that's not going to do a whole lot to stop the spread of the virus, and it really just isn't going to be all that helpful. Next topic to talk about is the little beef between Curtis Blades and Pearl Gonzalez. 
Uh, so Curtis Blades was sort of going on a, I don't know, the rant is the way to put it, but he was just kind of, I'll, I'll call it a thread. Uh, but he was talking about how he feels as though there are a lot of women out there, uh, especially in the fight game, uh, Paige Van Zandt, Rachel Ostevich among them, who they're, they're hanging around based on their looks and based on how they're displaying themselves in public rather than actually like being good fighters and improving as fighters. Um, so here's one of the things he said. I'll just read it, read it from uh, what he said. So he said, all joking aside, female athletes want to be seen as athletes first and get upset when they're sexualized by media or fans, while at the same time trying to capitalize and profit off the sexualization. They can't have it both ways. Either you want to be recognized for your athletic achievements and not for being attractive or vice versa, but nobody can have their cake and, and ice cream. Um, then someone was talking about Paige Van Zandt and Rachel Ostovich. He was saying, so you're telling me that Paige Van Zandt and Rachel Ostovich, or Osta whatever, actually deserve... Um, to remain on the UFC roster for their athletic achievements and not just on cards for their sex appeal. Because if I'm wrong about that, I guess I'm, I guess the whole premise of my original statement is wrong and I apologize. But if you're a legit fan of MMA, you can possibly believe the two females I mentioned are on the roster for anything other than the fact they look good in bikinis. Um, and then someone also brought up Pearl Gonzalez and he said pretty much the same thing. Like, yeah, she's got decent grappling, but she's a brawler and hasn't improved over the course of five years. Uh, and when, she, when he brought up Pearl Gonzalez, Pearl Gonzalez responded to him. Um, and Pearl's response was pretty much just like, "Well, look, you, you aren't exactly putting sentences together all that well. Like, let me see. Okay, so here's what Pearl said. I, she said a fighter complaining, how, complaining how my looks keep me relevant and that my skills haven't improved. The fact that you are today years old and still can't speak a full sentence blows my mind." Um, and then Curtis's response was, I've got a speech impediment. That's why my senses don't sound as clear as normal people's. What's your excuse for a lack of growth in MMA? Uh, so there was sort of like a split here. I think on the poll that MMA Junkie had, like half the people were on Pearl's side and half the people were on Curtis Blades' side. To Curtis's point, to be fair, and, and I guess to be fair to Pearl, what, Cur what Curtis is effectively saying is that athletes who are more marketable can stick around despite not having quite the same skill set as other guys as other people on the roster specifically to the woman he was referring to he was saying that their marketable assets are just their looks but to be fair the men who are more marketable also stick around longer too uh, so definitely guys who who get on the roster hang around on the roster longer because they're more marketable it just hap it just so happens that for women uh, a, a big marketable asset they have is their bodies and in those specific cases those girls have gone out of their way to make sure that that asset is is fully used so is Curtis right that they are on the roster primarily for the looks and wouldn't be there otherwise? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, Paige Van Zandt might still be on the roster. She's had some decent wins over the course of her career, knocked out Beck Rawlings, um, had some good fights, albeit losses against Waterson and um, against, I'm trying to think, uh, Rose Namajunas was also a good fight that she had. Um, had some decent wins early on in her career. So she'd probably be at a point now where she's probably like at the end of the line. Now, I think with that being said, she probably is at the end of the line anyway. Now, granted, it's probably because she's looking at Simon Bellator and is likely to make a lot more money than someone less attractive than her with this game with the same resume would. Uh, as far as Rachel Ostovich goes, uh, I mean, I just haven't seen a lot from her in the octagon that really tells me that she's at the UFC level. Uh, even in that fight with Paige Vanzant, I guess that's another one for Paige, but that fight just was pretty sloppy. Um, wasn't that impressive on the feet. The wrestling wasn't great. Uh, once the fight got to the ground, that was supposedly where she's supposed to be good, but made a lot of errors on the ground, especially um, leading up to the finish that Paige Vanzant had on her. Paige made a lot of mistakes on top. And not only did Rachel not make her pay for it, but she also like continued to like amplify it and 
make it seem as though what Paige was doing was actually like good and useful when in reality Rachel just like kept making mistake after mistake after mistake uh, even when Paige was like riding her back too high and fell off like it was a pretty easy armbar to defend but Rachel did very little to defend it properly and as a result rather than Paige just sloppily falling off of Rachel's back uh, she gets this armbar from the back and be like oh wow look at Paige like what a great armbar that she caught off the back when in reality it was more of uh, more of Rachel Ostovich just defending it very poorly so I guess in either case, uh, you, you could say that their skills, if they were not as attractive, th there's a decent chance that neither of them would be on the roster. Um, or to, or at least to say that if both of them get a fight within the next three months, that neither of them would be in the ro on the roster after four months. Like, I, I can definitely see that. Pearl Gonzalez did not stay on the roster. Uh, she infamously had that time where she missed weight after having breast implants. Um, but as far as Curtis's point about her not really improving a whole lot of the course of five years, I think there's definitely some truth there. Now, one of the things I've talked about as being a, a, a pet peeve of mine is fighters where, whether it's on the broadcast or whether it's just out of memory or whether it's me looking them up, where I'll see a fighter and that fighter has been a pro for like 12 years or 15 years. And so in my mind, especially as someone who, who trains and who's been around a lot of gyms and who sees what kind of improvement that you, you get over the course of that time, for me to, to know what 10 years of jiu-jitsu looks like and then see a fighter come up that's been training MMA for 15 years, and by 10 years of jiu-jitsu, I mean 10 years of jiu-jitsu for someone who's like doing it as a hobby and who works like a regular 9-to-5 job. Like Knowing what a, an accountant, for example, or a lawyer um, doing jiu-jitsu three times a week can, can do in 10 years, and then seeing a pro fighter have 15 years and their jiu-jitsu is significantly worse than the, the lawyer who's only done for 10 years, like that sort of stuff just drives me nuts. And you definitely see it a decent amount in MMA where you have fighters who have been pro professional fighters, but so that's their entire source of income or that's their main source of income whose skills don't improve at the level of regular people doing similar training. And it just kind of drives you crazy. And Curtis is definitely making a point about that where, where he's saying Pearl Gonzalez is sort of in that, in that same position where she, for the amount of time she's been training, her skills just don't match the time that should have been put in. I agree with that. I, I think I've seen a lot of women's fights in the UFC where that's been the case, where they'll, they'll mention someone who's been fighting for like 10 years, and then, then you watch them fighting, like, what are you, how, like, what have you been doing for all this time? To be fair to those women, though, because the divisions are a lot smaller for women in the UFC, and because those divisions are a lot less deep than they are on the men's side, um, just globally, you're going to see more of those fighters who have been around for 10 years but really haven't developed all that much that are still in the UFC just because of the lack of other people to take their spot. Whereas in the men's division, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of guys who also have been training for 10, 15 years and have made very little improvements, uh, but they don't stick around the UFC long enough for you to really notice them or they don't even get there in the first place. Uh, so it's not necessarily me saying that I think women as a whole like learn slower. It's just that that specific situation, you, you'll see it a lot more in the UFC right now just because globally there just aren't as many high-level women out there versus high-level men. Um, next topic to talk about is going to be the last topic to talk about, and that's going to be Stephen A. Smith. Um somewhat being vindicated so Cowboy Cerrone had an interview with Brian Komodo and pretty much said leading into that Conor McGregor fight that he just wasn't feeling himself he had a a well shared quote that was it was Donald out there not Cowboy uh, and that he needed Cowboy to be the, the Cowboy version of himself to be out there to, to really handle the Conor McGregor fight and to handle that better Stephen A. Smith uh, after that fight was saying that Cowboy just came out there and looked really flat um, just gave a really poor effort um, wasn't able to shine in the big moment, uh, not a clutch fighter, um, just didn't have the heart, didn't have it in him. Do I feel that Stephen A. Smith is completely vindicated by this? I, I, I don't know that I'd give him like complete vindication. I, I think it definitely does vindicate him to an extent. Um, it, it was pretty 
fair to say that the cowboy we got in that fight wasn't the best cowboy that we've ever seen. Uh, but with that being said, cowboy is generally a slow start in the first place. Uh, oftentimes he has to get hit a handful of times before he's able to recover and eventually get his wits about him and sort of get some get some momentum going for him. Even if you look at the fight that he has coming up this weekend against Anthony Pettis, the first time they fought was a very quick fight as well, uh, where he never really gained any momentum and Pettis put him, out, put him away pretty quickly. So I think that's definitely part of it, and it's something I think it's a context that Stephen A. didn't really have. Um, but with the Cowboys saying, hey, look, that just wasn't me out there, that wasn't my best, it, it, in a way it does sort of indicate Cal, or it does sort of indicate Stephen A. Smith. And I, I'd say the take that I had on that whole situation back in January is pretty much the same take I have right now. But a lot of the people who were going out of their way to rip on Stephen A. Smith, I felt were, being, were doing so pretty unfairly. So for anything to come out where it sort of vindicates Stephen A. Smith's point, in a way I kind of find it amusing, and I, I sort of enjoy that this came out and that Stephen A. Um, decided to take a bit of a victory lap, even though I don't think that everything he said was completely in line uh, with reality. But again, a lot of the people who were giving Stephen A. Smith crap were, were people who were not giving similar people in the MMA community crap for making similar points. Like I mentioned back then, Jimmy Smith, uh, former UFC commentator, former Bellator commentator, was making a lot of points that were pretty similar to Stephen A. Smith it didn't really seem to ruffle any feathers when Jimmy Smith said it. Uh, but when Stephen A. Smith said it, then everyone just had to go after him and try to like bully him out of the MMA media community. And it's good that Stephen A. Smith stood his ground, and it's good that he, he feels some vindication now. I'd, I'd like to see him back, and I'd like to see him cover more UFC events. Hopefully he covers this upcoming UFC event, um, UFC 249. Not sure that we're getting any really strong takes out of him, but and by that I mean I just don't know that he... He knows a ton about the guys who are involved. If Khabib was in it, I'm sure he would have had plenty to say, but I don't know if he knows a whole lot about Tony Ferguson. I don't know if he knows a whole lot about Gaethje, uh, Cejudo, or Cruz, for that matter. So, Either way, it, it's been a long time since we've had UFC fights. We're about to get UFC fights. Six days at this point. Just can't wait. Just from an entertainment standpoint, I can't wait to watch these fights. These are going to be great fights, great matchups. I uh, hope everything goes through. Uh, some of these guys aren't able to make weight for whatever reason because... Um, their camps have badly adjusted. Hopefully they're still able to fight, and hopefully the scale doesn't cost us too many fights. And really, hopefully it, doesn't, hopefully it doesn't cost us any fights, but if we do lose a fight or two, hopefully it's uh, something lower on the card. But can't wait for those fights to be coming. Uh, I hope that by the UFC doing this event, there's going to be a lot of eyes on it. Uh, hopefully it, it pushes other sports to say, hey, look, now that the UFC has been the one to take it the first step forward, we're going to take a step now. Uh, hopefully it gets the wheels in motion for other sports. Um, and hopefully... As I mentioned before, a lot of gyms are having some trouble right now, and you know maybe if people watch this event, um, especially a couple weeks after, and they see that Tony Ferguson doesn't get the coronavirus, Justin Gaethje doesn't get the coronavirus, everyone is able to do so safely. Uh, maybe it inspires them to sort of get things going back and start working their way back to normal. Maybe not only do we get a really entertaining event and some really good fights that are fun to watch um, from a technical aspect, but hopefully um, this event offers some inspiration for the rest of the sports community and also within the community itself. Uh, to get things going back to normal. So we got six days left. It doesn't seem very likely that anything's going to happen that could possibly put this event in jeopardy. I think Ron DeSantis is is going to push forward. I think the commission's going to push forward. UFC obviously wants to push forward. If someone's going to pressure Disney, you, you know, maybe it can happen. I, I just don't know who, the, who that stakeholder would be. It made a little bit of sense when the governor of California was talking to the head of Disney about an event that was going to happen in California. Is Gavin Newsom going to, again, try to go back to the head of Disney and say, hey, look, we don't like what's going on because it's going to lead to people acting bad in our state or in California? Look, I wouldn't put anything past Gavin Newsom at this point. I wouldn't put a lot past a lot of these governors who have just been 
taking full advantage of this whole situation and trying to s sort of put together some tyrannical tyrannical acts of um i don't know if the best way to put it i, I would say that some of the um some of the laws and provisions that they've been putting in place can definitely be regarded as tyrannical, whether it's shutting down beaches and keeping people from going outside. Um, just the bizarre... In, in Chicago, you have them, or where the mayor's trying to lock people into their homes, and if you have a house party, uh, you can be fined $5,000 and put in jail. Uh, she had a press conference about that. Um, even just social gatherings are, are being made illegal in some areas. Um, <clears throat> it's just wild that Oregon would lock down past July 4th. I mean, for one, that's an absurd amount of time, especially when you look at the fact that they're 40th in the U.S. in terms of cases. Um, but then to, like, make sure that July 4th is also, like, locked away, too, just seems like such a wild move at this point. Like, it's crazy for them to to go that far into the future, but then to also make sure that it, the lockdown ends right after July 4th, it just seems like a really rough move to be had. But hopefully the country as a whole gets some momentum and we start to get things back to normal. Um it's going to be tough to see how much of an effect the UFC is going to have on the country as a whole, but if nothing else, we're going to get an entertaining fight card. Um, if, if we get something more than that and we get some inspiration to, to get things going back to normal for other sports, then this event would be even better than it already is going to be, and that's that's something I would hope for and it's something I look forward to.